Hello. Hey, Michael. It's Kai. Hey, Kai. I know you said you were going to go out shooting today. Did you get to do that? Yes, I did. Yeah, it was a beautiful, sunny day. Uh, a little brisk, but um, got on my bicycle and rode into Manhattan and was photographing for a couple of hours at least. Yeah, it was good. It's a good day for it. Well, last night, uh, you and I presented at the inaugural meeting of the Marble Hill Camera and Supper Club, uh, created by one of our former guests and, and friend, Patrice Helmar. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you remembered the full name because I was struggling to... I mem- All I remember <laughs> is it started off with Camera and Supper Club, but I couldn't remember the Marble Hill part. I'm reading it. <laughs> ah, good. Smart. <laughs> but I bring that up right now because... You pre- you did a presentation that I thought was really good, uh, where you organized uh, works by camera. So, mm. so what camera did you use today? Ah, I was using the Hasselblad today with a two hundred and fifty millimeter lens. Wow, fits in with this. I haven't used the Hasselblad since I finished use, uh, finished working on the uh, Tampa work, and um, I just recently thought of a new use for it, specifically with that long lens. So, oh, okay, I, I've shot a bunch of film with it and i haven't processed yet to make sure that it's working out i'm using the uh roma innovation chain pod for stability with a 250 lens and photographing something pretty far away so uh we'll see see how it works i might have to switch to a tripod but i'd rather not because on the streets of manhattan and all that's a bit of a pain and and for those who don't know that invention involves um a chain like a window chain uh, attached to a a sash sash chain right the sash chain the old-fashioned uh sash weight chains um, attached to uh, a quarter twenty thread, uh, and the theory is, or the idea is, that the you you put uh, the chain under your foot and you kind of pull up a little bit as you're photographing. Uh, the idea being that having upwards tension steadies the camera in the same way that a camera resting on a tripod with with downward force steadies a camera, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it works. <laughs> I've used it. It works. Yeah. yeah, it works amazing. I've done one second, maybe even two second exposures that way. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so th- you did a, a presentation on that. And, and Patrice had asked me to do a presentation on my Staten Island photos. And I think... Yeah, which it, you've been uh, showing on uh, inst- anyone who's following the photo show Instagram account has seen some of them go by. That's right. Real photo show on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, I got to see more of them than I'd ever seen. It was nice to, to get to see the, all that. And you had organized them a little bit thematically as well, right? Right. They, I didn't, you know, stupidly, I didn't actually say how they were organized. I just said they were. <laughs> but uh. it was, it was uh, by weather, religion, people on the street, and um, sort of these, these little bungalow houses. That was the general idea. Oh, uh, yeah. Beach I houses. can see that now. Right. <laughs> no. Uh, the other two presenters were um, Allison Janae Hamilton. Did I say that right? That's right. And she goes by Al, right? Yeah, she's a first-year MFA graduate student at Columbia. And the first presenter, and by the way, her her work was fantastic. And I I think a uh, future guest on the show uh, for us. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. The- and the first presenter was Ilaria Ortensi, who graduated a couple, well, just last year, I think, maybe from Columbia. Right. Yeah. So uh, I think we might have a lot of future guests through this uh, camera and supper club. Yeah, that's right. So if anyone's trying to get on the guest list, that's, <laughs> that's how you break in. First, get onto the supper club list. That's yeah. right. Well, uh, tonight, well, tomorrow morning, we'll be releasing our episode with Giancarlo T. Roma, which mm. I mistakenly left out the T 
because you know I've known Giancarlo for so long. I I always just called him Giancarlo. But um, uh, actually, a, it was a a long conversation because Giancarlo has so many interests, and of of course, his work with his father Thomas Roma uh, and his grandfather Lee Friedlander was already enough to talk about. And then, of mm-hmm. course, there's his you know his writing and uh, his business, which we'll uh, discuss during the show. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's kind of nice that when you, if you are a good podcast listener and are listening to this within the first couple of days of it being released, you'll know that there's that event happening in conjunction with APAD, which is coming up next weekend, right? Right. And Giancarlo mentioned he um, he would give us an address for the um, for the event. Uh, I don't have it yet, but as soon as I do, I'll post it with the show. Great. Tomorrow, I don't know. Should we, should we reveal? <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, so uh, it, it's a big uh, day. So we're releasing that episode, and we're going to be recording uh, another episode same day with uh, British photographer Matt Stewart, who is um, more of a citizen of the world, being the internet, and uh, we'll be having a conversation with him tomorrow. So that'll be now we've got the Israeli accent. Now we'll have a nice <laughs> British accent. So we're we're getting more and more international. Check as those go off the list. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thanks for calling in. Yeah, no problem. And I uh, look forward to hearing it and, and seeing you tomorrow. Yeah, and on with the show. Great. Okay. Talk to you later. All right, bye. Are you loud? <laughs> just talking on the phone. Oh, no, just oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> but, you, but you guys get yelled at, like, oh, all the time. You got an email. Those cluster people. No, it's like, we're hated, actually. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've been here, like, three weeks. Like, <laughs> you have a reputation. Oh, my God, it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> so they tell us to come in here, so we yell in here, and, like, you can write on the wall with the whiteboard oh, markers. Yeah, yeah, so we're yeah. like, no. If you, I mean, you saw the office. It looks like a beautiful mind. Like right. Stuff all because you can write on the glass. Right. So it's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that make that's why these walls are, are yeah, whiteboard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now I that get door it. Needs to get pushed slightly. So the one which the door is not all the way closed. Oh, okay. There we go. Hermetically sealed. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here we go. All right. Well, here we are with Giancarlo Roma, and uh, my co-host Kai McBride. Everything all right over there? Yep. Uh, just <laughs> getting organized. <laughs> So we're at a... Um, oh, no, 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 no. We're oh. meeting at an undisclosed location. Oh, I didn't know. Yes, within a, within a fortified bunker <laughs> that's at the vaults for haywirepress.com, where all of the very expensive books are stored. I'd love to tell you where it that's is, right. but I, yeah. I legally can't. So. Exactly. That's yeah. right. <laughs> I mean, for the listeners at home, I want you to imagine, first we had to go through a disinfectant bath. <laughs> And then we had to switch into all cotton gloves. We're in the clean this, room now. Yeah, we're now in the clean room, and we're we're looking at this wild collection of books. So, <laughs> but we are here with Giancarlo T. Period Roma. Thank you. <laughs> I'll let you go. Keep pick it up after that, Michael. Oh, thank you. I, I had the location that. figured out. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad we didn't uh, reveal it. Well, I mean, as long as uh, as long as that was mentioned, why don't we start and talk about? This project of yours, uh, Haywire Press. Yeah, sure. So Haywire, com. yeah, I was about, I was actually about to say it was HaywirePress.com um, and hashtag, or at Haywire Press Instagram. 
Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll repeat all of that at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's a Twitter, but if there's, if there's not, I should probably get that before this airs. But um, lock that down. Yeah, I'll sell but, it to you. Yeah. <laughs> You're on your phone under the table. Now it'll be $500. Yeah, yeah. I'll just so, sell books from my collection. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. A competitor. <laughs> um so haywire press is a um is a business that i have with my grandfather who's um lee friedlander the photographer and i essentially sell his books most are rare and out of print and special editions all of which are rare and out of print um online on haywirepress.com and they're all signed and they're all from his private stock which is a fancy way of saying they're his and it has every single book and more you know there's a way of there's so many books that there's a way of counting that is kind of logical but then there's you know uh, pamphlets and exhibit catalog there's all sorts of other stuff so there he has 50 trade books they're all there in fact i'm coming out with something i'll i'll uh release it now here on the photo show um (laughs) there is a (laughs) they're um coming up with a set of the first 50 Friedlander trade books that all be in a set and in this wood box that you keep in display. So that's coming in a couple weeks. Um, but for now, you can just buy them individually. Um, yeah, I, I, we all were at um, 2014 at Pratt. They did a show of your grandfather's work called, um, what was it called? Printed Picture? Yeah, that's right. The Printed Picture. And they had a lot of those books on display, and some of which... You just hadn't seen very, you know, I hadn't seen a lot oh, of them Oh, yeah, before. that was the funny thing. And, and um, We should just give a little credit. Stephen Hilger had yeah, put that yeah. show together it was at Pratt. Great show. And I think you, you mentioned, because yeah. you, you wrote about it in Vice. Right, that was the funny thing. Is um, So the show was about two years ago, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, 2014 yeah. in April. It was 2014, and it was a great show just to, because I think they Pratt set up really well. They had little, they had stickers made to size of the covers of the books going up the stair. I mean, I, you both saw it, so I'm, this is for the listeners here, but going up the stairs. Um, and it was, I think, three floors of vitrines with the trade books sorted by subject matter, like retrospective and landscape and self-portraits. And mm-hmm. so it was like this, it was almost more of a um, something you'd see in uh, like a museum, not an art museum, like a different type of museum than an art gallery. Like, there was some stuff on the walls, but they're mainly quotes and some photographs i think but it was mainly about the books and they were in these vitrines and it was really interesting way to show where you you know you think photography show you think you know white walls granite floor you know pillars like chelsea it was this was very like about the books about the um the history of it and yeah it was really interesting so anyway i wrote about that for vice um and it was funny because when they asked me to do it immediately i was saying like am i really the the right I mean, isn't it a little weird that I, I mean, I have a different last name, but I can't like ghostwrite it. You know, I can't not, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's some journalist ethic somewhere that says yeah, you can't right. do that. Family <laughs> member. Yeah. Right. I'm sure there's like a rule book somewhere that's like, you can't. John <laughs> Roma Carlo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I can't. <laughs> so, but I, wow, you know, that's a great pen name. I yeah. Actually, I'm going <laughs> to, that Twitter handle will be taken by the end of the story. <laughs> I don't know. Kai just keeps talking yeah. under the table. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they asked me to, to write about it, but, um, you know, I, and they said, you know, put a personal touch, but of course it's, there's also a show to write about. So I thought, you know, I can't 
write personally about the sh- the show itself. I kind of the only way I could even see doing it is to split it up into two sections. Where I wrote half the article was basically about the show, and it could have been you know you wouldn't know who was writing. It could have just been someone who went to the show, and you know, as if I was sent there to cover it. And then sort of halfway through, I like quote unquote disclosed that you know I was you know I'm his grandson, and then I spoke about my relationship to his work and um you know how I, I wrote a little anecdote about letters from the people where that book was dedicated to me and i actually used to play um a ton of baseball growing up. i played about 100 games a year for half my childhood i would say and i would play this game to calm me down on the way to games where i would look at signs and i had to it's a typical like road trip game you you, <laughs> you find like a then b then c on no license plates but on signs and like store signs highway signs and once you get to Z, then you start all over. And this was the only thing that could calm me down before a game. And I did it, you know, almost every single day for like eight years. <laughs> and um, it's funny because my mom pointed out to me at some point. She said, you realize that's that's just letters from the people. That's just what that book is. And it was funny because, you know, obviously that book came out when I was two years old. And in a weird way, it felt like a foretelling of my weird obsession with signs and found mm. numbers and letters and so I wrote a little anecdote about that, and uh, it was pretty well received. I thought, I honestly thought people would think it was w- weird that I, you know, or like dishonest that I wrote part of it before disclosing, but I, I think it actually worked decently. And it's also, I, I think you were in the right venue. I mean, Vice yeah, is the oh, kind totally. of place where you could be a little more free about the way you describe things, and they're always looking for something a little bit different way of describing something, especially from people kind of on the inside of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess I'm a company man saying this, but it's, <laughs> Vice is really good about that where they don't pigeonhole, you know, they, they wanted me to explore that, um, that side of it. Um, they, you know, they didn't want to say, okay, just like write it as if you're, you know, as if you're just a journalist and, you know, they said, no, like, you know, take it the direction you want. They said, we'd like the personal aspect just cause you can offer that. Um, but you know, they let me, you know, we edited a little bit, but you know, for the most part it was my, they let me run with it. So that was great. But, um, so was this the kernel of the idea then for, well, yeah, it was interesting because the, so accompanying the exhibition was the Fesh script, um, that Pratt put called the painted picture and that had all the books laid out. And, um, Honestly, I think even for Lee, it might have been the first time, maybe besides the MoMA, the big MoMA book, that he'd really seen all the books laid out. So between that and the article, it kind of just became a topic of conversation. At a certain point, he asked me, he said, you know, I have, you know, I, I'm speaking as him now, have all these, I have all the books, and I think it'd be interesting to, you know, start selling them a little bit if you're interested. It'd be a fun you know, because I was, I obviously wrote the article and I was aware of the books in a way I wasn't previously. I, you know, I studied the Fesh script to write the article and the show. And all of a sudden the books, which is, you know, and he, again, he has so many, became a, a topic of conversation, a point of prominence. And um, he said, yeah, if you're interested, I, you know, it'd be great if you start selling them. And initially I just thought, okay, you know, I don't know, I've been selling on eBay and my mom is, you know, has been selling eBay for years. And I said, okay, well, you know, eBay, I guess, is a good place. But then eventually it was like, no, you should, you know, you should have a website and it shouldn't just be, you know, it's interesting, even if you're, you don't, <laughs> this is another company man thing, say, even if you're not interested in buying, it's kind of interesting to see all of the books in one place. Yeah, that's, that's something I definitely want to talk about is just now 
the website as this new archive, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of how I, I think of it too. It's, um, it's a way to just showcase what's there and they, um, and, and really almost, really almost everything actually is there. And another thing to take in a different direction than this is part of the impetus is, um, so Lee made over the course of his career about 12 to 15, I would say special editions. And I, you know, I know that's something that exists in the photography world to an extent, but he, he, he did quite a few of them and they were all done by this, uh, bookbinder named George Week, and he bound them in this, you know, super intricate, deluxe way, and each one of them is essentially a copy of the trade book in a custom binding in another case that contains a folio of, um, of prints. So it's kind of a case that contains uh, the book, so it's half book, half prints, and there's no standard. I, I'm describing it very simply, but you know, each one is different. Sometimes the folder is inside. Sometimes it's a separate thing. Sometimes the prints are bound in, and but can be removed. I mean, they're really quite big, beautiful things. Yeah, and I think one of the things that separates them from a lot of special editions that most photographers wind up doing is that <clears throat> a lot of those special editions are just bound up at the same time all the other ones are mm -hmm. done. And then they make a special slip case that they put the print in. Right. Or, or there'll be one tipped in print in the front or yeah, something like something, that. Yeah, right. something. But it's not just completely bound, like this hand-bound beautiful object right, right, right from the beginning. Right. And these were really... Um, another thing that's interesting about them is this, um, this binder, George Week, was... Lee pretty much gave him, and this is just how he described him, he just said, you know you know, you do it. You, like, he was such a, he wasn't just the, you know, good with his hands binding them, but he had, was a real designer. And so some of them you look at and they're familiar, you know, it's a similar font or cover. And then some of them are completely different colors. Like, a, I remember um, specifically, like One-Eyed Cat is a gray cover for the trade book. And then the special edition is like the Google colors, you know, it's like <laughs> bright yellow, bright blue, bright red. And, um, you know, it's not immediately recognizable as that, but you open it and it's beautiful. There's a well, book of, yeah. You mentioned that uh, that Lee had gone to the garment district to actually pick out cloths covers. Yeah, I mean, right? and he, and I guess this is obvious from his books, but he travels a lot. And so he would buy things all over, you know, the United States and abroad, um, different materials. And I've actually seen him do this um, when we were in Hawaii a few years ago, you know, just going to, my mom is interested in fashion as well. So we go into these stores and, and just like look through the binding materials and fabrics. And it, it's something that's really interests, I guess, my whole family. And, um, and uh, he would either buy them there or um, sort of try to approximate it with something back home. So he would, you know, go to the garment district and have something in his head and try to match it. And, you know, he'd give it to George Week. But it was this really... Um, you know, they're they're really more than anything homages to the books because they're they're different enough that it's kind of its own thing. It's not like the book plus. It's like another thing spawned from the book. Um, and those are really interesting because they they haven't really been showcased. I mean, very much in in the way that even the books have been showcased. Yeah, they're so precious and rare that it's hard to Yeah, and that was a that was part of it is that, you know, he uh you know, that some of them have been sold um and, but for the most part it's not something that I think even an avid Friedlander fan or 
someone who studied him would even know exists, to be honest with you. Did George Week end up with his own collection of those books? Yeah, I mean, actually, the, so they only stopped doing it when he died. He was, um, you know, I think they would still be going on if he was alive. But yeah, so he, you know, I think he always had like maybe an artist copy, but... Now we need to find where he lived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a, like a lonely widow. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, so part of the website as well and, and the, you know, Haywire Press in general is to um, make it so that people can see visually and, and be aware that these things exist because they really are something that's quite beautiful and, and should be seen just, you know, if, if you're a fan of Friedlander or just... You know, interested in photography or even art or book binding. There, it's it's an homage to a few different things. And Absolutely. the name itself is an homage. Yeah, yeah, and that's another thing. Haywire Press um, is the name of uh, Lee's self-publishing company that published. Um, nineteen seventy did self-portrait. Yep. And then nineteen seventy-eight did Lee Friedlander photographs. Yeah, and then I think Flowers and Trees was yeah, the last one. And I, when I say company, I'm saying it loosely. It was him and uh my grandmother literally selling them door to door and going like taking a bus into the city and selling them door to door for like five dollars um and it's the name itself is um is an homage you know haywirepress.com is an homage to haywire press which is you know i think last published a book in 1978 or something like that and um but the name that you know that lee came up with is an homage to uh him growing up on a farm and the fact that you use haywire to fix anything like a fence uh, i'm not going to name anything else cause the I, duct I, tape I, yeah the, there you go it's the duct tape of the farm <laughs> right. and um it was such a in the beginning such a like shoestring operation that it, it i guess the name befit the sort of homemade you know doing as we go self-bound self-published aspect of it so that's the original and it's a good homage. name yeah. yeah and it's actually a really good name yeah. so um and a lot of special editions because Lee essentially did it himself with George Week are published by Haywire Press, even if the original book wasn't. Uh, so they're all pretty, they retain the homemade quality of them. So. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, just to back up a little bit. <clears throat> so we've known each other almost 10 years now. Yeah. Uh, but you've known Michael probably, I don't even know how many years beyond that. Like I don't know either. It's a long since time. Since you were born. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, there you go. 24. <laughs> so 24 years. And um, and you're also no stranger to being recorded uh, uh, for an interview. You were on NPR when you were very young, I think yeah. 10 years old, for uh, show and tell. You can still find that episode. Yeah, you can still find Please don't, but you know. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> if you'd like to. <laughs> you want to hear Giancarlo before puberty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Took the words out of it. <laughs> um, but that show and tell was a collaboration with your father, Thomas Roma, and yeah. um, which you wrote when you were eight, and that came out when you were 10, yeah. uh, which everyone should check out. And then uh, more recently, The Waters of Our Time, another collaboration with your father, just came out in 2014, where <clears throat> if before in, in uh, show and tell you were writing like your reactions or impressions and analysis of the photographs you're looking at, but in show and tell... Uh, going back more to like your writing that you've been doing for Vice and, and other pl people, you actually wrote a, a fictional story to go along with the photographs after the photographs had been edited and sequenced. Right. So you're, you have this uh, connection to photography and writing. And now of course you're 
you talk about family business. I mean, it's everything from your grandparents to your parents. And now you, you're heavily invested in this uh, looking at photographs. Uh, But anyways, there's a rumor that you are also writing an introduction for another book of your father's. That's right. So, um, to speak to that, my uh, the book that's coming out. I'm I'm not going to say the title because to be honest, Unknown. it changes every exactly. day. No, so I don't, don't say yeah, <laughs> I don't right. get locked into anything. I, untitled dog. Yeah, book. untitled dog book. I know what I'd like it to be called, but you know we'll see. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't want to say now. No, don't. <laughs> it's funny. I'll just to spill the beans here. The way my dad works with um, any sort of writing, down to titling, is pick something, live with it, change it change it change it until my mom yells at him you have to stop because <laughs> yeah, yeah. make a lot of phone calls yeah call i mean a lot listen, of yeah the book would never come out it'd be called you know it'd be <laughs> a different language it'd be a hieroglyphic but yeah, you yeah. know like a <laughs> calling calling the press as they're about yeah, to yeah, start yeah. printing well um, i think yeah. anyone who knows your father i've i've gotten phone calls where they were going up to the country and they didn't have the original anymore. Somehow I wound up like they're dictating stuff to me so I can type it in to email it to <laughs> right. someone. You're, like, you're oh. like the way back machine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like bring this text back. But um, yeah, so that's exciting. Yeah. So, um, the, well, it, the, yeah. the dog show was called uh, Mondo Kane. Yeah, Mondo Kane. It's, it's spelled, um, most people say Mondo Kane because that's how you'd say it um, in English. But it's an Italian phrase. It means a world gone to the dogs, which means a world gone mad. So it's, um, the, um, so I wrote something almost exactly a year ago, um, that was published in the New York times, uh, about the show, which, um, was interesting because the show came out before the book, which I know at least for my dad is pretty rare. It's usually yeah, the other way around. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, uh, again, another small spoiler, it's the, the project then was Mondo Kane. It's not going to be, I say that, it's not going to be called that now. No. Um, so it's the same project, different name. But um, it's a series of photographs taken at a dog park in Brooklyn. It's called Diker Dog Park. And um, we have a family dog. Um, people always ask me, is it yours? Is it your parent? I mean, like, it's a family dog. It's I, a I, shared I, asset. Yeah, it's a shared, yeah, exactly. <laughs> joint custody, and it's very That's amicable right. and um, very mature about it. No. Um, <laughs> we're actually not very mature at all. Oh, no, actually, <laughs> it's a, whenever I have right. him and he, whenever, whoever takes him, the other person's like, oh, you want to leave? Okay, that's fine. You can go. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, you're excited to leave. I see how it, you know, right. so it's not mature at all, but needless to say, he's the love of all our lives. We're talking about Tino. Tino, our standard poodle. Um, he's a big black uh, standard poodle and he's 10 years old, but you'd never know it. He's really um, he's very surprised, more like a three-year-old, if anything. Do you want to so, tell people where the name came from? Yeah, Tino um, is uh, is an homage to Tino Martinez, who was my favorite Yankee growing up, because the first game I ever went to, first Yankee game, he hit a home run, and I thought, all right, well, there it is. You know, that's <laughs> that's the good player. You know, so um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so um, I sort of had that name in my back pocket for a while, and then when I picked out Tino, it just there's something, I mean, you know, it's one of those indefinable things. He just looks like a Tino. So, <laughs> um, so you, you wrote, uh, this piece for the New York times. Yeah. And I wrote it. Um, and, and it's funny because this was also kind of informational, kind of personal. It wasn't really about my experience going, but it also wasn't just, Hey, there's this photo project and this is what it's about. It was, you know, because I was there for a lot of the shooting of it because, 
Um, the way it sort of happened is, again, I mentioned this earlier, played a lot of baseball games. And Tino is, um, you know, ball obsessed is one way to describe it. But it's <laughs> it, it's like out of, you know, a, a psychoanalytical <laughs> level that he's obsessed with the ball. So he, um, my parents came to, I mean, every single one of my baseball games. And even if I couldn't be there for whatever reason, if I was sick or something, they would still go. So my parents have actually been to more of my own baseball games than I have. And um, <laughs> they would, <laughs> in the years that we had Tino, which was most of them, he um, they brought him as well. And if you could just imagine for a minute, you're in Tino's position, the whole baseball specifically is a game <laughs> about chasing a tennis ball sized ball right. for you know two and a half hours minimally. <laughs> And so he's, you know, it's just a form of torture for him watching, like behind a chain link fence, just watching it. And he really paid attention to the games for that reason. And even twice, um, I remember specifically, he managed to escape the leash <laughs> and ran onto the field as if it wasn't right. a huge disruption and like completely Finally. embarrassing. And right. I'm like hiding in my glove. Like. Let's also say that uh, at all of these games, there were these no dogs allowed. Yeah, signs. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there was also, he, he shouldn't have been there in the first place. Actually, one time he had, it was the day he had been neutered and the, the vet said, um, you know, he's not, you're going to have to basically carry him around for a couple of days. Like he's just not going to be himself. So he, you know, we took him to the game. He's kind of sitting there meekly, took the leash off. Oh, they like, let him lie down. Let him prepare. It was, he was playing possum the whole time. He just <laughs> shot onto the field. <laughs> So anyway, this is, this is the dog that um, inspired the project because after my games, you know, we, we kind of have to take him to the park or, you know, just as a sort of... Uh, so it won't be cruelty. Yeah, it would yeah, really be cruel otherwise. So we'd take him to the park and we'd been going to this park for years and years and years. And, um, you know, one day my mom and I were throwing the ball for, for Tino. And my mom uses, if there are any, um, if anyone listening has a dog, there's this <laughs> something called a chuck it, which is right. a big kind of extension of your arm, which allows, it's almost like you're throwing with your arm being like six feet long. So it kind of slingshots. It's kind of like high life for dogs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like high life. So you <laughs> fling the tennis ball. And so my mom is using that and I'm throwing it. And um, <laughs> so we're kind of switching off. And um, my dad just kind of noticed that these shadows um, that the dogs make are they're not like um, what you would imagine with me describing it. It doesn't just look like, oh, that's a sort of um, silhouette of a dog. It really, depending on where the sun is in the morning or the um, late afternoon, it looks like a completely different beast. It does look like um, an animal of some kind, but it doesn't look like a dog. It almost never does. And so he started photographing and he would put, um, he put a, he put his camera on a, a pole that you'd use to paint your house. You know, you get at Lowe's or something to paint your house. And so it was a, maybe you know, it was a 10-foot pole. Yeah, eight? it's either 8 or 10. Yeah, it was a very large pole. And so what we would do is we'd go to the park. You know, we'd throw the ball for Tina, my mom and I, and he would have this huge pole. And um, he'd be running around trying to take pictures of these dogs. And now just to set the scene a little bit, it's not... Um, it's not a small park. In, in New York City terms, it's as big as you can get for a dog park. It's quite big. And there are dozens and dozens of dogs that come and dog walkers that bring 20 at a time and they all run in and it's just absolute madness. And we got to know a lot of the dogs um, <laughs> quite personally or quite <laughs> caninely, if you will. So he's running around taking these overhead pictures of the dogs with their shadows cast that look like these completely different things. And a lot of them actually are Tino. 
that's just sort of uh, half of it's out of convenience because he was there every time we were there. You know, we never went without Tino, but um, but he also cast amazing shadows. He, he's right? actually yeah. great. He's a great like subject. A beast. Right. He's a he, beast. Yeah, he yeah. has a he has a real signature. He really looks kind of rabbit or feral. Yeah. Where some of the other dogs look like. I mean, I always try to give a name to him. Like one of them to me looks like a water buffalo, and another <laughs> one looks like um, that Egyptian. Um, deity that guarded the underworld that had like three heads. There's one there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's right. someone they're sitting that the way, you know, maybe they're intertwined with another dog. Their shadow looks like some sort of underworld, you know, river of sticks creature, you know. Yeah. And I, if um, I'm not mistaken, I think I think uh, a good number of Tinos look almost look like dancing in a way, like dancing in a, around a fire or yes. something, right? Yeah, they were, yeah, exactly. And so that's it's um one of the ways my dad sort of thought about it was, um, and people have said this too independently, is they kind of look like cave drawings. They look like very primitive beast depictions. And kind of adding to that is, and my dad is really um, was really concerned with this in a way that um, is really distinct as a photographer because uh, it's not something that you know you you look at the picture, you see the shadow. But what he was what he was really concerned with is the background, and in these in this case, the background is sort of mottled dirt ground. I mean, the ground was all grass at one point, but over time with all the dogs running on, it just became this sort of dusty, um, like pocked surface. And it kind of looked like the surface of the moon or something. So a lot of these photographs, it's not just the shadow on, you know, imagine a slab of concrete or something. It's a shadow on this weird surface that almost looks like when you see cave drawings how the cave is you know it's got jagged edges and it you know it's indents and marks that are kind of just part of the the visual of it but have nothing to do with the silhouette so you know he called them moonscapes instead of landscapes i guess you call them but um what happened with the project is it it you know we still take tino there all the time why isn't it still going on basically um the parks department decided to um what word did they use? Revamp, you know, beautify it or something. So they closed it down for a couple of years. And um, when it reopened, it's, I mean, it's objectively nicer, but um, the, the ground isn't very interesting. No longer photographic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, again, I, this is where you could, this is where the photographer's eye comes in. I, they just wouldn't, the shadows are still, you can still see the shadows. I mean, they'd still be there, but there there'd be no real background to it there'd be there wouldn't be that kind of primitive i think what a lot yeah, of the primitive, less wild looking. yeah i think a lot of you don't realize it but a lot of the wildness also comes from the background looking like some sort of cave or otherworldly surface so anyway the, the that's why the project ended and i know um as a writer i know this too but specifically with my dad what i was saying with him and how he works is it, i think it was a blessing in disguise because sometimes it's hard to know when something's over you know yeah and, <laughs> absolutely yeah. and i'll tell you um also just from because i i sort of aided in the sequencing of the book and that's a whole another interesting um process that my dad does with sequencing but there could be four dog book i mean there's and i think how you've seen <laughs> yeah, it too, there's yeah. so many good <laughs> pictures that it, it never would have ended on its own. It never been like, oh, I got my, you know, hundred good pay. I mean, yeah, they're all yeah. great, honestly. So, well, with the way, way your dad's working, we'll probably see something down the road in a different kind of release. I, yeah, I think so. I, yeah. there, that's another rumor that I think is true. <laughs> exactly. So. The Mondo Connie dog leash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, branded uh, collars. And, I actually have a shirt. I should have worn that. I have a t shirt that um, my, my mom made. And it looks, I, 
in case these ever get produced in any fashion, <laughs> they look absolutely great. You've seen it, right, Kai? Oh yeah. It's um, you know, just a white T-shirt with the picture of. Um, I have Tino, but oh, you know, you could have another job. Right. <laughs> you can have, and, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It won't just be a Tino line, <laughs> but, um, yeah, they're just, they're really wild and amazing photographs in a way that, um, I mean, I can tell they're my dad's, but it's not his usual subject matter. There's no, uh, there's intensity and there's wildness, which I think are two trademarks of what he does, but th there's not, <laughs> there's not suffering. I can't, I can't say there's suffering and there's usually some form of suffering going right. on. In his photographs, so it's a little break from that. <laughs> well, something you mentioned just earlier in the description um, made me think about this website going back to haywirepress.com, which is you mentioned being obsessed with uh, going to your baseball games and looking for the letters as you go as a way to calm yourself down. But another obsession that's related to the website is you were were or maybe still are an avid baseball collector from you <laughs> That's know right. so you and the family would travel down to tampa florida to be there when the yankees were spring training <clears> you know and you're going after uh baseball getting baseball signed by your favorite yankees or maybe even not your favorite yeah ones. i mean know. really anyone any but yankee, <laughs> I guess. so can you do you think that helps you like relate to who your customer might oh, be? oh absolutely i mean website? it's there's um there's a, my favorite book is called The Museum of Innocence. It's by Orhan Pamuk, who's a Nobel Prize winning author. And he's actually at Columbia, too. And um, without getting into too much detail, a lot of the book is kind of subtly about what it means to be a collector and not just, oh, I like having a lot of things. But there's a real, it's a, it's a very specific and, and kind of beautiful psychosis to it. I mean, beautiful more if you're not the one doing it, because, you know, when you're the one doing it, a lot of it just becomes obsession. But um, there is beauty in, in the thing of it. And so what Kai was saying, my parents and I, for I think nine years, we would go down to Tampa, Florida, where the Yankees have spring training. It's actually going on right now. And um, we would spend about a week. Um, I think the modern term would be stalking, but, you know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I remember we, there being trips to malls and restaurants. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, oh, we're just, you know, hotels. just happened to be there. Right. Nothing I can do. Um, but we'd get up around five in the morning and I'd wait. My parents would, needless to say, I have the best, most indulgent parents for doing this uh, for me. But we'd get up at five in the morning and my parents would kind of camp out at the entrance to the practice facility, um, to, the, to the practice, the spring training stadium. And um, they'd wait there to get seats. The gates open at 10, they'd get there around 5.30. So they'd wait there, always the first in line, so that when the gates opened, they'd get the best seats. And just a little background, it's not an orderly line, it's a mad dash. So my mom, <laughs> being a former runner, actually yes. helped a lot because she she could outrun uh, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of young kids and get the best seats by the dugout. <laughs> so while they were doing that, I would wait in the parking lot, um, outside the parking lot, and I knew every player's car. And when they'd come in, you know, you hope they'd sign and most of them don't, but, um, some of them do. And so that was the beginning to the day. And then we'd watch practice and you'd know the, you know, there's a few practice fields. You kind of hear through the grapevine, um, who was where. And then after practice, you know, it's Tampa, Florida. It's a, I hate to say if anyone's listening from Tampa, but it's a fairly uninteresting place. There's not a lot, there's two malls 
And that's where everything is. And uh, from what I've heard, a lot of porn shops. Oh, a ton. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kai, yeah. I'm talking about Tampa. Kai knows yeah, Tampa. That's right. That's right. There's, um, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. And porn shops, I have to know all yeah, about Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. I mean, so. <laughs> well, when I was doing research for my book, which is Photographs from Tampa, yeah. I learned that Tampa is only second in the, in the country behind Cincinnati for adult entertainment. That's, right. that's surprising to me. <laughs> so Cincinnati must really be you know, oh, right. out there. Yeah. Yeah, what does that say about I actually remember for a few years when I was you know, 9, 10, 11, wondering what, what, the, what is the pink pony? And then I, <laughs> about 12 years old, I kind of figured it out. Because <laughs> they're, they're not hidden away. They're right there. They're right there on, on Dale Mabry. So yeah, we, you know, we know, I, I, you know, one little tip, I don't know if this is still true, but Alex Rodriguez used to eat lunch every day at P.F. Chang's. And so, you know, I used to eat lunch every day at P.F. Chang's too. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that was the sort of thing we did. And, and it, it kind of, you know, I, we're all, you know, Yankee fans and we watch games, go to games, I was playing games. I mean, we were really immersed in baseball in a way that wasn't, you know, wasn't normal. It kind of spanned everything from the the viewing to the playing to the mechanic. You know, my dad read countless books on hitting mechanics. I mean, it was really every, we were real baseball, not just fans, but, you know, lovers of, of the whole enterprise of it. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you're, when you're essentially trying to get baseballs and magazines signed every day for seven days, it does kind of become its own thing and takes on a life of its own. And, you know, what you're doing more than anything is collecting. You know, you're in a collector's mentality where, you know, theoretically, if it was something else, I'd probably have the same mentality about it too. It becomes its own, um, <laughs> its own organism. So that's something that I, I guess I was born with. But um, having explored it, I, I definitely understand the idea of being a completist, which is something that with with these books, I think appeals to a lot of people is, you know, it, it'll kill you to have 49 out of the 50 books, you know, that one book will drive you crazy. And that's how I was too, you know, it didn't matter how and I, I got well over a dozen Derek Jeter autographs, but if he was signing the next day, I had to be there. It wasn't, you know, in a way it was was sort of the same thing. It, it, collecting is collecting. It doesn't end once you have it. You have to have the next thing too. So, um, and maybe you have a copy of Factory Valleys, but you got it on eBay and the cover's a little smudged. There you go. <laughs> and you're like, oh, but here's a mint of a copy, like right. Lee's collection, that's signed a, by him. Exactly. I mean, that's the, the main um, characteristic of collecting is there's, 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 uh, there's no end to it. There's no, it, it, you're, you're chasing a rainbow with it. You're never, <laughs> you're never going to get there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> unless you go to Haywire Press. Yeah, unless you go to Haywire Press. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I, well, you know, part of that is you're talking about the life of, of the collector. And certainly, um, I think every one of your grandfather's openings I've gone to, somebody, including myself, has mm-hmm. shown up with a stack of books yeah. for him to sign, right? Yeah. But there, I mean, did you ever buy baseballs off of websites or I mean, on eBay or anything? I, I did a little bit before. I mean, I started going to the spring training when I think I was 10. And I, you know, like I said, my family is sort of a, were early adopters of eBay. So I, yeah, we, you know, I'd search, I'd get for Christmas a, a ball of someone, um, a player, but probably a player who wasn't around anymore or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like an old, an old player or a player that, you know, was in a different city or something. It, it, I don't know. It's, it doesn't have the same panache. I mean, it doesn't have the same part of what being a collector is, is you have the story behind how you got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when it's so tactile in this way, it's physically, you know, it, when you hand, you know, the first time I, 
this is a whole other story, but I met Derek Jeter I, and he gave me an autograph. We happened to be alone, which is like, at, especially in this day and age, completely unheard of in um, spring training or otherwise in life, being alone with Derek Jeter for five minutes and having a conversation. But, you know, when I look at that ball, it's, it's, I remember so vividly everything about it, you know, and that's part of what collecting is too. It's the, um, it's the story of how you found it or how you got it. And, you know, they're like little capsules in that way, you know? Yeah. I mean, when I go to the strand, uh, up in the rare book floor on the strand, sometimes you'll see they've got a copy that's signed. And then sometimes, which is, you know, like, oh, well, you know, especially if it's a photographer who's dead, you know, yeah. I, I think I got a Helen, I have a couple of Helen Levitt books that she signed for me, but then there were, after she died, I found, I think Mexico city, I found one of her other books right. that she had signed. It's like, Helen's never going to sign another book. So it had, it, that was the treasure of finding oh, something so rare, right? Exactly. Um, but then other, but then like the more disappointing versions, it's like signed and, and personalized to somebody. Oh, it's like God. just, you know, Joe Blow or whatever. You're like, oh, well, who cares? But the, I think one thing that distinguishes haywirepress.com is mm-hmm. that it's not just finding one of Lee's signed books somewhere. It's books from his collection that were in his basement that, yeah. you know, that are... His, that he's handing over to his grandson. That there's a real yeah there's a story there too in the way these right. things are and, being produced. And the thing with when you when you buy, um, I mean, a, a lot of things, but sports uh, memorabilia specifically, is they give you a sort a certificate. It has sort of the the lineage or the the you know pedigree, whatever you want to call it, of the of the item, like where and a it's certificate true, a lot of, of authenticity. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of command. Yeah, and a lot of times they'll even have a picture of the person signing it, just so you know it's you know this is when it happened, and that's a lot of what has to like as Kai mentioned, it's um there's there's a story behind the book. It's you know, I I'd like to think I think most people do that. It's like you said, it's not just a signed Lee Friedlander book, but it's one that um is actually his and <laughs> you, you told know. me an amusing story about uh going to get a bunch of heavy boxes of books from uh from his house and do you know where I'm getting yeah. to with your grandmother? Yeah. Oh my well my grandmother first of all is much stronger than she looks for anyone that's and if you haven't seen Lee has a book called Maria of her so also um, for sale on yeah also for sale anyway <laughs> um she's very very strong but yeah a lot of these um what's interesting is you know they're the books in the house and then he you know he signs them in the studio I mean it's really you know if you were to transpose it into sports terms it, it would kind of be like game used or something you know it's there's a difference between oh I, you know he sat was paid to do a signing go in some hotel crank him out you know this was like you know, amongst all this stuff and on shelves where he's looking at, you know, it's, it's really, um, as close to the, you know, the, the artist's hand as best possible, honestly. Yeah. Maria's like, oh, in these t- it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she, we, Shopping these boxes. Books are heavier than you think too, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's not an easy operation just due to his output of books. Like I said, it's 50 and then, you know, 50 plus because you wouldn't count, you know, two-person exhibitions or you know the special editions or another thing i mean by the end of it there's probably 75 things for sale on haywire press and mm. you know books you, you think oh a box of books it's like it's a workout it's like it, it's really a it's a task well, we were um talking a bit about you writing and collaborating yeah. with your father um is is the uh, the dog book going to be a, a different kind of collaboration in terms of how you're going to approach it is it character driven is it story driven is it yeah it's so it's it's um it's kind of a version of what i the the piece that was in the new york times so the 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 piece that was published a year ago was you know obviously there's a it's a new york times so there's a word count and there's editing back and forth and um 
but this version that will be in the book is going to be longer and more personal, a little bit more behind the scenes because there wasn't, you know, when there's a word count, either you don't really have room. If you're going to be personal, you kind of have to just be personal. It's hard to like, you, you can't get to that level of like, yeah, I was there and this is what it smelled like. This would have looked like because you, you can't half do that. You know, you have to do it or not. So this is going to be a lot more um, flush, like fleshed out in terms of uh, my experience with it and sort of how the pictures were taken. So it's going to be a version of it, but much more, much more uh, detail given in, in terms of how it was done. So. Yeah, so I'm actually that that book is coming out this year, so that's something that we're actually finalizing in the next couple of weeks. But it's uh, just to be clear, it's nonfiction, but it is something that I was present for a lot. So it's you know personal nonfiction, mm-hmm. yeah, something and along those lines. You have a, a a lot of interest, and we haven't even talked about all mm-hmm. of them yet. But yeah. is writing your primary love interest? Yeah, it, it def it definitely is, and it. And it it always was when I, even when I was playing baseball, I always kind of had it in my head as a, as a kid that that's what I would do during and after playing baseball. So I, I, I always knew it was what I wanted to do. And it was sort of my way into, um, you know, my dad's work. I mentioned show and tell a while uh, earlier. And, um, that sort of started, which is, I'll explain it really quickly. It's a collaboration where I wrote essays about my father's photographs. And again, they're kind of, they're nonfiction, and they're, I would say they're personal, but in a different way in that it doesn't speak about specifics. Like a lot of the pictures in that book were taken on my block growing up, but I don't say, oh yeah, that's my neighbor and they're nice people. You know, it's all about just what's yeah, in the picture. it's a bit of an objective read. Yeah, it's an objective read, even if I had to put aside my, you know, knowledge of literally who the people are, where it was taken. Um, Which is part of why uh, Tom started using, and I know a lot of other people have adopted it as a a great book for students to look at who are trying to learn to speak about and write about and think about their own photographs is that everything that you write in your descriptions, like laundry lightning is a title. He's like everything that's written in there, (laughs) you can see it in the photographs. You don't have to know who the people are. You're, you're it's an analysis. Right. Not only did I still use it, but I always tell them, and he was eight. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a little bit of rubbing their nose. (laughs) (laughs) Little guilt. Never heard of (laughs) But, you yeah, know, I think just to speak on that for a second, I think that's, um, I mean, it's certainly if you, my, in my dad's uh, teaches at Columbia and that's sort of rule number one for the classes. You don't speak about, um, you only speak about what's in the, the photograph. And if you, you know, any backstory is, uh, I don't know if he would use this word, but I would say, you know, cheating in some way, because that's not, that's not the medium. That's not really, you know. Well, there's no end to it is the problem is once you yeah. let that, once you open that door, it's like you can say anything. It's like, oh, no, that's the hammer that was used to, right. you know, kill so-and-so. And, yeah. and, and, and yeah, it I goes mean, on and on and on. Exactly. And, and because of that, a nuclear war broke out in Estonia. And you're like, what? Right. You're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and art is only really valuable if it's... They're never that interesting, my, st- yeah. my stories. <laughs> <laughs> I can feed you some. <laughs> <laughs> But it needs, I mean, the whole thing with, with, I mean, photographs especially, but, you know, art has to be efficient in some way. And if it requires all that explanation, then you can just say, well, why don't you come to my house and I'll um, <laughs> speak to you about my life. You know, at a certain point, it's like, that's already life. You know, it needs to, you have to work within the constraints of it. You know, a four minute song could make you cry, but you could date someone for a year and break up with them. And that also makes it, but that's, you, that's not digestible. That's just life. You know, at a certain point, it needs to be just, that's what's in the, you know, in between the lines of the photograph. That's... So that was sort of the constraints I was working with is um, 
just speaking about the photographs as as in what's uh, what's in them, even if I had some prior knowledge. So, so that was my first collaboration, and that was nonfiction. And when I was eight, and then we did um, the Waters of Our Time, which actually just came out in hardcover a few months ago. So that came out in 2014, but then the new version in 2016. But this is a little different in that it's it's nonfiction, but it's also it's, an, it's because it's an introduction. It's also meant to sort of center the um, you know the viewer of the photographs in that the picture it's not clear how the pictures are taken first of all i mean they don't you you know you wouldn't necessarily know they were taken with a pole 10 feet up in the air and even that you know that that scene of watching my dad run around taking those pictures is something that you know needs to be in that book it, it's kind of hard to separate the process it wasn't just oh i spent a lot of time walking around the street seeing pictures it was like that itself was its own thing to behold and so i'm, I'm sort of giving voice to that in the book and also, I think you're, well, I'm guessing based on what I read uh, in the previous article is that those photographs, there's a, because of this idea of like the, the projection of the way these dogs change in the shadows, that there's also a gravity to it that, that I think will be, I assume your text will have some sort of responsibility to like placing and how we think about these creatures and the way they come across. And Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard because I don't, I'm such a big fan of what my dad does in, in general, but you know, specifically these dogs that it, it's hard to like temper my, I, I just, my excitement about it because I see so like these pictures are, I think are so layered and so, in, you know, they're visually just very appealing to look. I mean, you could put them in a, you know, in your bedroom in a, on a boardroom, you know, they kind of fit everywhere. They're very like self-contained. Like I said, it works even on a t-shirt. But there's so much... There's many layers. There's yeah. many layers, and there's yeah. a, a lot of it. I mean, I this is a little, a little bit of what I wrote about in the, um, the New York Times article that I'm going to expand upon. The new version is that, I mean, to me, the and this is the Columbia core um, shout-out here, but it, it looks... It, it really reminds you of um, the whole shadow aspect of Plato, you know, first and foremost, just because... Um, in a, in a in a twofold way, one in that they're shadows in Plato's cave allegory, of course, as the shadows that are you know are fictitious and they're they look like the outside world, but if you haven't seen the outside world, that's what you think like. It's sort of like the Matrix; it's levels of consciousness. But at the same time, when you look at these pictures, you can't help but think that these um, the shadows are almost like thought bubbles, and this is what the dog thinks it is, because they always look fiercer. It's very, very rare that the shadow looks like, oh, that's like what he looks like when he wakes up and he stretches. Like, no, <laughs> this looks like something that could kill you, you know? Yeah. And, um, or is, you know, especially with Tino, like you said, with the dancing or the fire, he always looks like he's running a thousand miles an hour. And I know from, you know, because I know him, that's something that is, uh, you know, I don't want to project too much as a dog owner, but that's himself actualizing. You know, I know what it looks like, and I imagine that's what he thinks it looks like. So um, in that way, I think it's it's kind of an interesting interplay with the shadows being strangely more real to the 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 um, the, the thing that's projecting it's the like shadow, like revealing the beast. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, and just, there's in photography, you hear portrait photographers speak about how they oh, are you going to try to get like something about the inner essence of the person yeah, coming absolutely. through or whatever? And some of those photographs, I mean. You, the the actual dog is like little sweetheart, tiny little right. thing, but the projected thing in, in the in the throes of play are yeah. I mean, that's another else. thing is they're they're like very authentic portraits in a kind of 
roundabout way, but they're also, again, they, they kind of look like landscapes. Like they're, mm-hmm. yeah. some of them look like little dioramas of things, you know? <laughs> so you have this, you know, a shrub and then a rock, and sometimes the rock is in a certain place where it looks like a ball or an eye, and it's just, it really, it, it makes you think, like, this is what the first humans, you know, made a record of in a cave to, to you know, who knows why they did it, but, you know, to honor, to try to make sense of, and it just has, you know, and again, the Plato resonance, it has just such a, an ancient quality that is uh, the best word I can use is wild in a you know urban dog park and so that's a little bit what I'm going to talk about in the introduction but um it's 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 very layered and it's more layered than it even looks because usually things that are very visually appealing you think oh that's what it is you know it's nice to look at but having both at once I think is really special I think this project has it so what I, I was um sort of working my way around before is mm-hmm. the the idea of uh, you know, writing about um, photography and, and collaboration with your father and then having these other interests and things. And, and one of the things I, I saw that you wrote about on Vice was one of your other sort of great passions, and that was chess, mm-hmm. which is a, another a period in your life that I, I saw you <laughs> go yeah. through, and, <laughs> which was very intense, as yep. intense as everything else you oh do. Oh, my God. Yeah. Everything you do has an intensity to it. Yeah, I mean, down to the baseball collect. You know, that's the funny thing, is, and it's a family thing, too, It's just... We kind of approach everything with the same speed. And so the chess was, you know, I started playing chess when I was six and I played kind of on the national circuit for about six or seven years. And I still play, um, I still play online on this internet chess club where you play people from all around the world and you have a rating and it's, it's great and competitive and, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like when you, when you do something competitively, something competitive, seriously, it's hard to recreate or at least I found it's hard to do it recreationally. So, you know, this sort of chess club that I'm part of is, is serious enough where I can still approach it the way I'd like to. I mean, to this day, I can't enjoy playing softball in the park because <laughs> I don't, it's not a game to me. It's like what I did for there, there are no stakes here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and even if, <laughs> I mean, it's funny because with games, there's you know, the stakes are just when you make them, right. but even that like implied stakes, it has to be there. I was like, it's just weird. Um, yeah. So I played, um, you know, about a tournament every other weekend for years and years and we traveled and, um, it's, uh, just as funny because it's, if you, if you think you've seen a, um, a stage parent, chess parents are the worst. I mean, they are brutal because, um, you know, every, you know, you see pageant and now it's a thing. Everyone knows what a pageant mom is or like, um, you know, a sports dad or something. And it's a um, hockey dad. Right? Yeah. A hockey right. dad. And right. it's always, um, this awful connotation, but with chess, because it's so intellectual, the thing you're projecting is not how you look or, you know, how well you're, you can move. It's just like, you know, how smart are you? How tough are you? It's, I mean, it's a one-on-one game with no talking, you know, it's very psychological and, you know, there are parents that are just very, very, uh, concerned with how their (laughs) child does at these tournaments. Luckily I never had that, but, um, it's a very intense, this is my point is that it's a very intense subculture that not many people know is that intense right if the parent is the coach and then like hand signals cheating oh that's a real thing yeah i um i was in a tournament once and i was playing this kid i was beating him and it just to give a little more color to the story so i i grew up with someone named fabiano caruano who is um might be competing for the world championships this year he's the youngest grandmaster in history he's i mean an incredible incredible player and the first time he actually went we went to the same school for two years and I 
joined chess club in first grade and I, I never lost until I played him and I was in sixth grade and he was in fifth and I started crying because I never, <laughs> and I, and I, I'm not a crier in general, but I right. was devastated. And, um, my chess coach, his name is Bruce Pendlefini, who's um, well-known chess coach, and he was—he's the the coach. If you've seen Searching for Bobby Fischer, he's the chess coach, and he came over and he said, "I should have warned you. He's 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 good. You know, he's the <laughs> real thing." And um, so we used to play. So we and him became friends. We used to play a lot, and we, you know, I I I have beaten him. I beat him quite a bit, but he beat me. He always beat me more. You know, I, I never. I don't think I ever. I don't think I was ever over the fifty percent right. mark. But over time, the next few years, it became rarer and rarer, and then. Um, you know, he was homeschooled. He went. And so anyway, so he, um, he's incredible and he's someone I, uh, lucky to say I grew up with and, you know, got to play with, but he, um, his father, he was always sort of the big cheese at these tournaments. He would fly in on private jets and sound machine, you know, he was like sponsored by sound Billy machine. Oh, to help him sleep. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Bum, yeah. Oh yeah. Bum, no, bum, no, no, no. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had a body double in a different room so Smoke if anyone yeah, would go, the lights. <laughs> that would be funny an entrance for chess that's right you'd be you'd be surprised though at these things the psych i mean it's so i find this so interesting even back then i thought it was so fascinating like i would so our we had this bruce was our both our chess coaches and he would um he had one we were two of his three students and so he'd come around before every match and just um come and say hi and whisper something, you know, in our ear or something. And everyone knew who he was. So the opponent would just like stare like, oh, shit, you know, like. <laughs> um, and it was just like something, you know, you did to get, it was so much about getting in someone's head and that was part of it. But anyway, so because he was always on the, um, you know, there's one board that's sort of elevated and that's like the main game. And um, there's thousands and thousands of games. I mean, it's kind of incredible to even describe it. There were, you know, it's basically in these enormous, enormous hotels that have airplane hangar sized ballrooms and um, thousands of games going with the ticking and the, the of the clock and the hitting of the the pieces on the board and the hitting. I mean, it's just like this weird like symphony with no words to it. Mm -hmm. And over time, there's fewer and fewer games. It gets more quiet. But I was on board five, which means I was the tenth play. I was board number one is you. You know, you're the favorite to win it. And this was the fifth out of seven games. And I had a shot to actually win it in some you know which is amazing but anyway i was playing this this um this russian kid and and so because fabiano was the main board and his father was a, you know kind of a big shot in that area so his father was allowed to come in and sort of walk around and nobody else's father really was so he would walk around and then go back to my parents and say he's up a pawn he's up two pawns they just traded queens you know so he's like narrating it right. and my parents you know they they were never really chess players but you know they obviously knew enough to be like okay wow okay like he's close you know like they're following it along and at a certain point, the kid, I remember distinctly, you know, he said he's going to the bathroom. And so, you know, he was gone for a weirdly long amount of time. And uh, long story short, he comes back and he ended up beating me. And he, you know, he came back and it was just, you know, he played a great second half of the game. And when he had gone to the bathroom, my parents and Fabiano's father had seen him go over to his mother and they were speaking in Russian behind a board, uh, this big, you know, sort of curtain. And, uh, he thought that's weird. That's not legal. It's suspicious. And then we, I had the same outgoing flight back to New York with him. And it turned out that his mother was a grandmaster, yeah. Russian grandmaster. So <sighs> you think, how can you cheat at chess? <laughs> right. You know, no headphones, no, you know, lie, no phone, no, any, no communication. Well, uh, there's uh, ways to do everything, you know, <laughs> um, the full bladder. And, right. And, yeah. and then you, you wrote about your experiences mm -hmm. in, um, Washington park. 
And it, oh, this was Union Square. Oh, Union this Square. Was, yeah, Sorry, Union Washington Square, Square yeah. Park is the famous, and that was also in Searching for mm-hmm. Bobby Fischer. That's sort of the famous New York public chess spot. But um, <laughs> kind of because of the subway I live off of, I, I, I'm in Union Square a lot. And uh, right outside, when you get out of the Union Square station, there's chess players. Like, you don't, you don't need to go to it. It's just there. You get out of the station, and the players are just there. And I got roped into a, um, a game once. I just, I, this guy was just, he had this red umbrella, and I just, I couldn't. He was just so nice. He said, hey, how about a game? And I just, I couldn't say no. And, and um, we played, and we talked, and uh, he's a great guy. He was, I think, $5 a game, just to be clear there. You know, it's a way of making money for mm-hmm. the players that are there, and there's maybe 20 at a time in the summer. And they're notoriously good. Oh, they're right. good, yeah. yeah. And the thing is, it's amazing, and I'll get to uh, the article in a second, but they're almost all self-taught. It's amazing. They they studied in public libraries. They played their friends. I mean, these aren't kids that came out of, um, you know, private tutors or, you know, even schools with programs or anything like that. They just wanted to play. And um, so I'd see him every time he was in Union Square. And at a certain point, I just thought, and this is going back to what you're saying about Vice, like Vice is really encouraging about sort of firsthand um, your area of expertise, journalism. And so I just said, I have this idea. I want to talk to them. I mean, like every time I play with one of the guys I just end up talking with them and they have these amazing amazing stories and so I went back a few times and I interviewed my guy's named Carl and I still see him around um and uh I said you know I'm writing this article who else should I talk to like you you tell me who's like the most interesting here and so he pointed me in the direction of these two guys and you know I, I I'm not I won't go through the whole article I you know I I would say it's worth a read but you know like that would have to come from you guys. I guess. No, we're the, we're gonna, we'll link to all of this. Yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now we will. We'll, um, we'll link to all of it. I mean, their their stories were so varied and so interesting. I'll just say a little bit about one. This Carl was um, went to the same high school as Bobby Fisher, and Bobby Fisher is from Brooklyn. And uh, most people who play chess and are from Brooklyn know that and take great pride in that. And he's he's sort of known as the best chess player ever. And um, he, this guy Carl, didn't play chess until, like, he, everyone kind of knows who Bobby Fischer is. He found out that Bobby Fischer went to his high school, and he was, I think, a sophomore or junior in high school at that point. And he dabbled in chess, but didn't really play it. And he said he, he had this moment when he heard where it's just, like, this epiphany that, you know, Bobby Fischer breathed the air in these halls. He walked, and he just felt this sort of, like, kinship with his spirit. I mean, it was such a, like novelistic beautiful thought and that's what got him into chess and you know he's talking about the hardships he's had in his life and you know how chess has always been his outlet his relief his way of self i mean it's just if you want to know why chess is more than a game and it's kind of just more beautiful than a lot of other ways of competing i mean that's it you know and um and for this other guy i interviewed he was saying how it was a way of him um sort of turning the tables on racial inequality and how he went to a school with a lot of white kids and his high school was public high school and they didn't think he could play. And he, he said, you know, they were saying because they were all white and he was black. And he said, like, all right, well, let's just play then. And he said, I'll play black. And he did you know, <laughs> a little twinkle in his eye, you know, like it wasn't just, hey, think of, you know, because black has the disadvantage of moving second in right. chess. But half of it was, you know, let them think I don't know how to play <laughs> and let me beat them with black, you know. And it was a really... um you know, really fascinating way of thinking about the game. but And that's another thing that I think is just worth mentioning is most of the players, even in Washington Square, but also Union Square, are black. And it's an interesting part of black culture that not a lot of people um, are aware of, but it's it, there's something about, you know, I studied um, African-American studies in, in college, and, 
you know, there's certain things that are part of what you, you might call the black experience or the black, American black experience. And chess, um, especially in these public places, really meshes with uh, the black experience. And it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, if you think about jazz and improvisation yeah. and performance. Stride piano, cutting people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the, these chess games, by the way, aren't, you know, you play in a tournament, it's two hours on each person's clock, so the games could go four hours. And I actually... My strategy when I played is I would take almost all the clock because I kind of figured out that I could sit at what table longer than most people. <laughs> so I would milk the clock just to get in their heads. And But these guys do the opposite. They play five-minute games or three-minute games or two-minute games. So you have almost no time. And even if you're a good player, you go and play with them. They're talking. You know, it's it's a lot of, you know. They talk trash to you. Oh, don't they talk they? Tra- yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and you kind of got to talk back. If you're quiet, yeah. like, they'll keep talking. It doesn't help to... <laughs> Um, so the whole, you know, it's very, it's, it's quick, it's performative. There's a lot of improvisation. I mean, it, it kind of meshes with a lot of other things that are central to the black experience. And I think that's just fascinating because not a lot of people are aware of that. The chess is so, um, instrumental to that. You were a dual major at Columbia for English and yeah, African American studies. English and African American studies. Yeah. Um, and I was, <laughs> I was, uh, the only white kid in the program and often the only white kid in any of the classes and sometimes the only male and i mean it, it was mm. it was a very <laughs> mm. i was the only one of my kind in most of the classes and um it's funny because there's a phenomenon in um again the black experience where you sort of have a moment where you realize you're black and this is du bois talks about this and sort of you come into consciousness of um how other people view you and i had a moment and my own funny moment like that um i think sophomore year in college where I had this great teacher teaching class called um, um, Photographic Culture in, uh, within the, the, the African American Studies Department. And she, she was a British, a white British woman. And she pulled me aside after class one time and in her office and said, you know, I just want to check in with you, see how you're doing the class, make sure everything's all right. I said, yeah, like, is there, you know, is there an issue or, you know, anything like that? And she said, no, it's just you're, you're the only white kid in the class. I just, you know, I, I just want to make sure you're okay with it. I said, oh. Yeah, I guess you're right. You know, like it literally never occurred to me. <laughs> um, and you know, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not saying oh, I'm colorblind or anything like that. It's just I, the my relationship to that um, discipline has a lot to do with, um, you know, me playing baseball growing up on a team that was mainly black and and specifically Dominican and Hispanic. And um, you know, my father's work is. I would say 75% of the subjects in his books are African-American and he's photographed in black churches and uh, the criminal court system and elevated trains. You know, a lot of the Brooklyn, um, you know, this is also a big part of Brooklyn culture, you know, and so it comes from my dad's work and my experience growing up. But you know, there's also just sort of the, the um, like I was saying, there's certain things that are really specific to it in terms of, um, you think about blues music, like a, a sort of joyful expression of sorrow and improvisation. There are all these things that are just tenets of um, black culture that I think are, you know, I relate to just as a human being. And I know a lot of other people do. And for that reason, it wasn't weird to me to be the, you know, the white kid, because what we're talking about, I feel, you know, some sort of kinship with very strongly. And it's not to say it has nothing to do with color, but, you know, I'm thinking about it in terms of the essence of it. But then also when you think about, original american culture oh that's black and writing culture. and music 100 right like uh, black culture is american and that's what a lot of people don't realize is the biggest cultural contribution america's ever had probably to anything culturally is jazz and jazz is a distinctly you know um inarguably american form you know and people don't see that as you know a lot of people think of it as um 
you know, they don't realize how big a contribution that is to the world and that it's actually American. You know, when you're talking about black culture, you're really talking about American culture mm -hmm. and that, you know, we can get to a whole other discussion about even today with, you know, rap and even pop music that has rap influences and hip hop and style um, and fashion. Oh my God, it's right. everything. I mean, right. you look at, when you say oh, American culture, you could trace it. I mean, this is going back to even Elvis and everything. You could trace that and it's not, it's not a long way away from distinctly, um, you know, black forms of expression. And then the export of Western American culture to Europe and other places oh, yeah. when African-Americans were leaving the United States for a better life. 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I have more of my questions go back to Haywire Press. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, but, yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Um, first of all, maybe you can just talk about the collections because you have yeah. a number of collections and, and maybe even more tying into that is this idea of the research or scholarship you had to do to even describe all of those books accurately and you know and put them in the right context and everything. yeah i um i a big part of it initially was you know the education of it i you know i obviously in the beginning was aware of all the books i'd heard of them in some form or another but you know okay chronological order and then um you know knowing exactly who published just going through and making just you know getting all the information the year and um, who wrote an introduction, wrote a, you know, a piece about it. And then I wrote my own, um, they're on the website, um, right now actually, but I wrote my own, you know, three to four sentence descriptions of them and sometimes include the publisher's note. Sometimes it's just my own, um, you know, a couple words on the book, but there's a lot of research that went into just sort of categorizing and, and knowing, just knowing what's what with it, because there's just the quantity really necessitates real, you know, ar archiving and bookkeeping, but it's not, it's not easy. It's not like there's five books and like, this is what they are. It's so many different ways to think about it and so many ways to count them. And so a lot of what we're doing with Haywire Press, there's a few levels to it. One is just the website and they actually are also on eBay just in case, you know, I'm hoping more people have heard of the website now, but you know, right. if you just happen to search it online, is it a, like a Haywire store on eBay? Yeah. I mean, that's the handles Haywire Press. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, you'll know it's from the same source. And then the next tier up from that is sort of the um, events like, uh, so APAD is going on in two and a half weeks mm. in New York City. And that's, um, Kai, you could that, say what that's that coming up, for. yeah, April, <laughs> well, it's, it's April 13th through the 17th, just so everyone knows, Wednesday through Sunday. Um, but it's a show every year, uh, all photography dealers come together and you have to, it, it's not just any gallery that happens to do photography. You have to be a member of APAD and be allowed into APAD. And so there's a certain level of quality of, you know, and you have to buy a ticket to go in. You have yeah. to buy a ticket to get into and see it. But, right. So you're doing an so event we're doing, that's associated. Yeah. With it's it. associated with APAD. So it's an event that's going to be in a space, um, sort of adjacent to APAD and it's, um, you know, it's the same days. It's just because, um, you know, these aren't because it's its own like these special editions and deluxe editions are sort of their own category. You wouldn't really call it a book. You wouldn't really call it a print. I mean, they have both, but because they have both, they're sort of neat in neither category. So they're going to be all of them and some of the portfolios as well, which are um, a lot of them are also the cases are designed by George. They're sort of adjacent as well to the special editions in that they're exquisitely bound cases with prints in them. And they'll all be on display. At a, I'll get you the address after this, but they'll all be at, on display during APAD for, you know, for sale. But I mean, I think it's really interesting just to see them all in one place. I'm not sure they've actually ever even been displayed all at once like this. So that's going to be going on during APAD and I'll be doing other events like that. Um, 
down the road, but that's the most immediate one. And then sort of the, the level even beyond that is trying to place the special editions and even the trade titles into collections, you know, universities or institutions or museums, because they are really essential pieces of Lee's um, body of work. And a lot of it has, um, I mean, some of them are in collections, but for the most part, there's far more places that have his prints than the special editions. And again, talking about completists and talking about a place where research can be done, you'd, you'd kind of have to have these for it to be complete in terms of his career and his body of work. So we're involved in doing, um, trying to place it with some collections and, uh, you know, I'll give you an update as soon as I'm, I'm, I can't talk about specifics totally. And this is why we're doing this in a vault, obviously. That's right. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, we're in the process of doing that and that would be really exciting to sort of have, you know, at least, uh, you know, a place where these things can be, uh, accessed and studied and maybe in a, you know, rare books library or something like that. So, so those are sort of the three tiers of it. You know, there's sort of the consumer end, which is the website, the middle tier, which is, you know, these shows and getting in front of people and showcasing it. You know, I, I think a lot of these, the books, but also the special editions specifically, they're, they really, um, play well. And, you know, it's describing them as one thing when you see them, it's like, hmm. yeah, I just made a face, but they're, yeah. kind of, yeah. <laughs> It was yeah. a face of ecstasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they're really, they're really quite beautiful, and um, you can. There's a lot of things that they could, you know, they could be a, a centerpiece on a, you know, a, a table. They could be in a collection. They could be in store. I mean, there's so many ways that these could be collected that um, it's when you see them, you really get it. So, um, so that, and then there's the, you know, the institutional level of trying to place them and get them in the permanent collection of places so that you know they're sort of on the record as being. Um, you know, part of the whole Friedlander body of work, which again is so big that again, the collector thing in order to really be complete, you can't talk about his career and his, you know, his output without also talking about these. So yeah. trying to get in front of people with that. The books, the books. Yeah. The other thing that kind of strikes me about the website is the range of prices on the website, right? Yeah. It reminds me of when you like you go to the Maserati dealership or something and you're like, wow, blah, blah. And then you're like, Oh, look, I could buy a mug. Or I could buy like I could buy a T-shirt or something. You know, keychain. Like, yeah, yeah. I'll get the yeah. I'll get the Maserati keychain here. Or something. I'm aware that it's a little weird too. I, I completely. It's not. It's probably not. The but there best. are there yeah. are things on there. I think the maybe fifty dollars is the lowest. I don't remember. But there's, yeah, there are like there's stuff. Oh, I could I could buy this or or I could get a, I you know like I said I don't have a, maybe my version of that book is not so great and here's a better version. Right. I could, I could upgrade or or get it for yeah. a hundred bucks or something where it'd probably be that much if you found it on Strand or eBay or right. something. But then it's also right next to the $33,000. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So right. Like, That's the thing is, um, and it, it is funny because as you're scrolling through and you see the price, it just looks completely mismatched. But the special editions are quite a bit more because they all contain not just prints, but vintage print, you know, vintage signs, yeah. silver gelatin prints. And it's, you know, it's funny. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this candidly is that a lot of the special editions, as, as expensive as they are, are actually in a, in a weird way kind of steals because there's prints in there that if they just sold individually at an auction would sell for more than the special edition. So it's almost like... Yeah, we give, throw the book in yeah, for free. Yeah, you throw the right. special... Yeah. You know, it's Here's like if you want to think right. of it in terms of price, like <laughs> they're... If you look at some... And a lot of them are recognizable. They're not just like, oh, the you know, the prints from the backlog. Mm -hmm. They're really like recognizable prints. So yeah, famous photographs. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's why they're more expensive. But again, in a weird way, it's like, 
<laughs> just made another face. <laughs> in a weird way, it's like <laughs> it is kind of it is kind of a deal if you're looking to buy a you know leaf freelance print. So yeah, it also strikes me. You know, you hear these stories about uh, people's kids getting their iPhone and like ordering stuff online or whatever. <laughs> it's definitely not the website to like leave your browser open. To, yeah, right? right. <laughs> yeah. If you're asleep, the computer yeah, yeah. user. Then, right. uh, <laughs> Hey, and this? there are no refunds. I will what's say this that now. Oh, <laughs> I don't care if your yeah. kid bought it. <laughs> All sales are final. So. Yeah. But, but going back to this idea of it being this new resource and archive, and um, you know, we just our last conversation was with uh, Susan Kismarek, mm-hmm. the curator. Yeah, and she talked about how much she enjoyed working on the chronology for the Gary Winogrand retrospective, and she's working on another one right now, and how much how that scholarship is what people really go back to and hold on to a lot of times is that, you know, the research and and seeing these things laid out. And I know, for example, um, Robert Adams, I've gone to the, the uh, Yale university uh, library and they have all of his books laid out in order and stuff. And similarly, it's like amazing to go to your website and see all of this stuff laid out. I, I'm, I don't know if you thought of it, but I was going to make a recommendation or a push that, even after all these things sell out, you should leave them up as like, you know, sold oh, out, abs- but yeah, absolutely. for the record, I mean, you know? actually in that vein. So right now, if, I mean, the kind of book of record for all the you know, Friedlander printed output is the, uh, the big yellow MoMA book that was published yeah, to coincide the Galassi, with, uh, yeah, the with uh, the retrospective. But that, you know, that book is about 10 years old, number one. But also I just know from doing my own research and compiling everything that it's not, it doesn't actually have everything in and that's not you know obviously an indictment it's just there's a lot of stuff that um exists and it, it, it's not it's not terribly easy to keep track of it all and so one thing i will say is one of the um things we're hoping to place is a complete collection that has every one of every printed really everything so that mm-hmm. means books special edition deluxe edition portfolio everything that's been printed in a case and we're hoping to uh you know and I'll, th- that would include just more recognizably, let's say like the double elephant um, mm. portfolio, you know, like printed in it. So something like that. Um, and then going through that and trying to say, okay, well, if it's complete, you know, what, what does that, you know, what does that mean? And in going through us, it's interesting how these things happen. Lee and I in trying to like, you know, locate everything just to make sure that, and a lot of it's not even available on Haywire Press actually, but in order to locate everything that would be part of this collection, we actually found some amazing things that he didn't remember he had that MoMA never, you know, yeah. didn't know. No one and, would ever know if yeah, he didn't. Yeah, I mean, I'll, one of them had. is um, there's a portfolio. You could see it on uh, Aikens Press's website, but it's a um, portfolio of 13 photographs by Lee and 13 by Robert Frank of Raoul Haig, who was a sculptor, and he's their mutual friend. So hmm. um, six of them were ever made. Four were given away. Robert Frank has one. I don't know what he did with it. And then, you know, Lee has one and that's wow. it. That's all there'll ever be. So, you know, mm. part of the, what's interesting about the complete collection is that's it. You know, there's going to be one of them and, uh, wherever mm. it goes, it goes. And then there can't be another cause there's, there's not even more of the things that are in it. So, you know, that's obviously that's not on Haywire press, but that's something that, you know, wasn't in the MoMA book cause you know, Lee didn't remember Aiken's press, you know, it was published so long ago. I mean, there's just all these, there isn't, and this is to Kai's point, there isn't really a central record of everything and it's hard for any artist to, to have that it takes a lot of archiving and work to understand all the you know what the output is so you know i have I'm making a kai mentioned this to you a, a book of all of most if not all of what is in that complete collection and that output and um 
you know, I'm not sure if it'll ever be for sale. It might, but the point is I'm trying to kind of create a record so that... Yeah, I think I saw an earlier Yeah, you saw that, sort of an early copy, yeah. Yeah, that, that you had printed out on on-demand printing. Yeah, actually, yeah. As soon as I saw it, I was like, ooh, I, you know, I want one <laughs> yeah, of these. No, this it's, is nice. it's a great It's a great resource. It has everything laid out, and, you know, I can personally assure it's complete you know it's kind of like a discography idea yeah or, it's, yeah it's yeah. funny um absolutely I, I was you know i was trying to figure out how to package the um the first 50 books that i was mentioning earlier as a set because i think you know a lot of people have said i mentioned the idea it's like well you know again the collector's idea is completest and it's like it's in a box and it's this um idea of having everything is so appealing to a collector and um what came to mind is um the idea of a box set because that's how you think of you know for music or even like a Fellini box set or something like that and so I mentioned it to Lee I was thinking I was thinking about this idea and you almost think about like a box set like you know a like a Ray Charles box set and he said um, he said you know I'd rather have the Ray Charles one though. <laughs> <laughs> he's like unapologetically a bigger fan of Ray Charles than himself <laughs> um, but you know that's that's the sort of mentality behind it is just you know you 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 pay a price and you get everything. There's no doubt that, you know, you'll never have to look for it again. Mm. It's there, you know, and that's, I'll tell you, you know, like I was saying it from a collector's mindset, that idea is, you know, so appealing that you could mm. just, you have it, you did it and there's a place for it. So I don't, you know, I'm the, the more I think about it, I don't think that anybody else probably could have put this together, you know, because, um, yeah, I mean, Lee's kind of known to be circumspect, especially when people approach yeah. him with things. And even I'm sure like Peter Glossy, who Lee's very uh, friendly with and they spend time, it's not the same as having you come up to the house and yeah. start digging through things. Right. And, and that's another thing is a lot of like all the, um, you know, the work that I do, you know, getting, signing the books and, and getting them, shipping them out. Like it all happens initially at, you know, Lee's, uh, place in New York and so and you know my grandparents place in New York to be honest it's it's something that's really uh it, it I, I agree with you that it's not something that is the most ready thing I mean he's yeah like you said he's known to be someone who's a bit um you know he's not media friendly for I, so I think I saw that written somewhere he's not he has, a, he has actually a funny story when I was doing the vice thing they they said oh we really like it we just you know just try to get a quote and I was like oh, he doesn't really give quotes he's like no just just get something so like, all right, Grandpa, I was like, you know, I'm writing this article. Like, would you mind just giving me a quote about, like, how you felt about the show? And, like, wow. you know, I got an email back, and it was like, <laughs> it was like if you've ever seen a Derek Jeter post-game interview, it's like, yeah, you know, we played, a, you yes, know, right. played our best, and, you know, it's a team. Yeah, always putting out 100%. Yeah, so always putting 100%. <laughs> you know, we really came together today, and uh, we got the job done. All right, thanks, Susan. You know, I was like, so it was like, it was like, okay. So I posted, I pasted that in, and... uh they're like, okay, thanks. And then when the final copy came out, it wasn't even in there. So, <laughs> so it just didn't really fit. So, right. yeah. Yes. He's, he's not an inter an interviewer, which... Um, no. <laughs> yes. The, the, pod, the uh, Photoshop podcast cannot, cannot look forward no, no, yeah, no. to a future episode. Uh, yeah. George Lee for Atlanta. Yeah, no. This is it. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, but that's sort of, yeah, so you're right. It's not, it's not something he's like, he's generally open to, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's been a great experience. To, but, oh, to plus he's busy and, you yeah, know, no, he's, I mean, he's he, in the dark room every yeah, day. He's I mean, doing he, stuff. He, so to let he, someone into his house yeah. to like find these things, well, to yeah. find stuff that's been stored away for 20, 30 years. <laughs> exactly. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a unique, um, opportunity to, to do all this and it's been a lot of fun. And um, I think he, didn't I hear you say, or maybe uh, Tom told me that. 
a lot of the stuff uh, his dealer Jeffrey Frankel wasn't even aware of all of this. Oh, stuff. yeah. I mean, mm. like, it was literally in, you know, he has a, a pretty big place in, um, you know, semi upstate New York. And so there's, you know, there's just, a, there's a lot of stuff. There's just, I mean, he's in his 80s. So there's, um, there's just, a, and he's produced so much. And that there's stuff, like I said, that sort of just was found that was in a box. And like, oh, I, now that I see it, I remember this, but I would have never, you mm-hmm. know, remembered it. And that's been, um, one of the most interesting things is again the collector thing is like this scavenger hunt idea is that we're looking for one thing and then you know you find another and you know I just know from my research that I've never seen this anywhere I've never you know and, and that's the stuff that's pretty exciting to go through and, and make sense of and categorize and like I said there's the complete collection and there's the first 50 books there's all these different ways to sort of think about his um, you know output that it's it's been a lot of fun to sort of make sense and categorize this, you know, bracket this off. This is complete. This is the 50. These are all the special. This is all the deluxe. And, and it, you know, it's not easy. It's not like it was all there laid out. That's the kind of the point is it wasn't like, yeah. Oh, he, this shelf is the first, this is the right. special. It was all like, right, yeah. that's in one room. That's, you know, that is, <laughs> you, to really you didn't have a on. list you were going by. Oh either. no. It's like, oh, it was literally finding. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. It was literally this, discovering. this book from 1984. Yeah, no, I, exactly. I had to, I actually, yeah, I mean, I the list was made by me pretty much of the whole <laughs> yeah. of all the stuff. So yeah, but I, think, no, been, I think you've got to put out that catalog. Oh yeah, I, I I agree, and I'm I'm really hoping that we can, and um, you know, we're we're very hopeful that we can. Uh, it'd be a lot easier too if we could place a collection. We're hopeful we can do that, and then the um the book will sort of be a record of okay, if you want to see it in you know X Y Z institution, this is what you'll see, and I think that's that would be really interesting to some people and. You know, again, the great thing about institutions is a lot of the time you can, um, you know, you can access it. I mean, I remember even at Columbia going to the Rare Books Library once, and it's amazing that they let you in. You know, if you're, you know, you can actually go, and if you have a reason to do research, you see these amazing things that they just can't put out in the normal library. So some sort of, uh, you know, final destination that looks like that would really be ideal. Yeah, so. out of the basement and into a research exactly. library. <laughs> 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 exactly. Yeah, sounds good. A more fitting home for that. Yeah. Uh, well, we spoke a lot about Haywire Press, but I also heard you uh, drop another name of another venture that your grandfather was involved, which, uh, involved with, which is Double Elephant. Yeah. And uh, that was a series of portfolios that he did... Um, uh, I just forgot the name. With Bert Wolf, like he and Bert Wolf mm-hmm. did, and uh, they did uh, Manuel Alvarez Bravo, Walker Evans, Gary Winogrand, and Lee. They did portfolios and posters, and um, Steidel just published a book uh, about Double mm-hmm. Elephant, binding those portfolios together. And we had Susan Kazmarek on the last episode, and she wrote for yeah, she wrote, that catalog. It, yeah. yep. And uh, I noticed today that you have it on your website. You can buy the Steidel just yeah. released book already signed by yeah. me. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was funny because right. I actually put it up a couple months ago. It wasn't out yet. And I remember thinking like, oh, is this so, I mean, I guess this is what you hope for in, in terms, you know, in art and your music and like the first release, like the first place you can, I mean, it's not as oh, much yeah. hype as like a, you know, Kanye's next album, but you know, like <laughs> it was the first, it was the like sort of inaugural release of it. And um, yeah, I mean, that's obviously because Lee got his copies for, and I just know from, the books I did with my dad, you always get your copies. And obviously from my dad's books coming in, you get, you know, the artist gets their copies, the publisher gets their copies a couple months before. So yeah, that's why it's up there. And uh, yeah, the, it's a great, um, it's a great looking set. It's a case that has all four of the, the books with all the, all 15 prints. And I, there's a pamphlet that has 
what I think is kind of the star of the show, which are the posters. Oh yeah. Um, it has all the reproductions of the, the posters that accompany the double elephant. Anyone who's come to Columbia. I was just about to say. It's mm-hmm. very familiar with them. Yeah. Wall of posters. Yeah. 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 Um, so it has, yeah, it has, it has everything in it. One other person, I don't know if we mentioned her by name, but I think is also very important to haywirepress.com is Anna Roma, right? Mm-hmm. Your mother. Of course. So uh, she still helped. She was helping, I think, with, at well, least initially with photographing. Yeah. I mean, the thing and, with my mom is that she's, um, she doesn't have it on her business card, but she's kind of an expert in, in bookmaking in general. And then <laughs> go down to designing and pre-production and scanning and Photoshop and InDesign. And I even things that I actually don't know the word for, but in terms of um, like, what is the stuff that she does in Williamsburg? The, um, the, there's grayscale and curves. Oh, and oh, yeah. oh okay. I guess right. you'd call that pre-production. Right. Yeah, she does all the pre-press work. The press work. work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. the press work. Yeah, I mean yeah. things I actually don't. I don't yeah. even know what. I yeah, know. over the years she's picked up all the skills necessary, mm-hmm. and not in an abstract way, but having to do actual. Oh yeah, I mean so, right. learned it because you know she she was doing it. She you know my, the way my dad runs uh, Roma Enterprises. Roma Enterprises, which <laughs> we affectionately and now. Uh, legally call SPQR right. Industries, and right. that's another thing we can talk about. But um, <laughs> our little, you know, all our home operations is that you know it's all kind of done as much as possible in house and as much you know creative control and just general control as possible. You know, obviously, like we touched on this earlier, but my dad edits edits and sequences his own books, and he comes up with a title. And the you know we have a whole bookcase and um, that he bases the size of his books off of. I remember it was really. So it was a great experience with um, Show and Tell, which came out, I guess, 15 years ago. But we were deciding this, the size. I remember we went over to the bookcase, all the photo books, and we pulled out this one. We're like, all right, a little, like a little smaller than that one. Then we took another one. It's like, all right, a little longer. And we kind of found, I forgot what book it was, but it was, we found a book that we wanted it to, to be like in terms of size. And um, so that's sort of a window into his process with bookmaking, but from my mom's end, yeah, she's amazing. She's got, it's not just that she knows all these programs now and can, you know, lay out a book, do the scan. I mean, she's, I, this is why my, my parents are going to, uh, you know, this publishing venture, but they are just, they, she, I mean, she could work at any publisher and, and do everything top to bottom. I mean, even down to marketing, but what's so amazing is, um, she helped me sort of design the, the cover for the books I was talking about with the Haywire press collections and, your sensibilities are amazing. Like I'll describe something like I'll say, okay, I kind of want this picture on the cover, but I don't like, I, I know what I like. I have it in my head. I'll like, you know, like sketch it out or talk it out or like kind of like a font that looks like this. And so come up with something that's so like risk, like even a daring. It's not just like, Oh, this looks nice. It's like, Oh, like there's, you know, the font is vertical and then it intersects and there's the mm-hmm. negative space. And it's like, it's really advanced design stuff. And she sort of just sort of just has a head for it. She, um, she's always had this way of, mastering things right i mean yeah just, i mean just taking on roles figuring them out and mastering them she's, no it's she's been this incredible and creative force it's unbelievable i mean she um just to give us a small uh, example of it she decided a few years ago that she wanted to make uh clothes for my dad and i not just you know not like knitting sweaters but like real like designer chic you know modern clothes and she took lessons for i think four months and then um, she sort of worked on her, you know, and not just sewing machine for a few, nothing you know, like small things came of it. And all of a sudden she was making these shirts that I, you know, I wear to go out. I don't like wear it when I see her to appease her, then rip it off. You know, I wear it when I'm you know, seeing my friends with my girlfriend and everything. So, um, 
it's uh yeah they have advanced features I mean, right oh my yeah, god yeah they're not hidden they're like, pockets <laughs> and like special inseam yeah i mean it, it kind of gets back to what i was talking about this intensity it's kind of the roma family way right i mean you totally you kind of you you, you you get interested in something you you figure out how to do things and you go you go to all lengths to do it right yeah exactly that's and to the point where you reconfigure the house to do it oh right, my god right? yeah that's that's sort of <laughs> literally and figuratively like the household i grew up in where right. everything is sort of optimized for work and workspace and um you know my dad has the top floor of the um my you know the house i grew up in my parents house um is a dark room and has two separate studios and it's not you know i'm painting oh it's luxurious like it's it's more like you know my dad physically built it himself the dark room and the studios have it's um, luxuriously functional it's, it's luxuriously functional exactly this is not like have a glass it of wine fills the and, need yeah, yeah it is like tables lay, it, it looks like um, I always joke with him, like if if he ever was convicted of some sort of crime, and they, you know, they always break down the house and like look through your stuff. They could show on TV like his dark room and his studios with all like the table with lines of tape on them and, dr- and scraps of paper, and like you'd be like, this was the lair of a madman. That's right. You know, and there's this sort of smaller doorway leading yeah, up through exactly. a winding he, he, stairwell. He was right? obviously plotting the attack for months, Chip. You know, like I yeah, like <laughs> mixing chemicals at varying times. You know, it's. It really, it, it's not a, you're not going to find it in, um, you know, home and garden or whatever, but it's, it, it, it's a, it's a real workers, um, you know, dwelling. I mean, in the back he has a machine shop and I mean, Kai obviously has done work in there for years and, you know, it's, it could, you could run a small production company. I mean, my dad oh, yeah. likes to say, absolutely he can build anything in that machine shop, including another one of all the machines, which I always think is a funny way of saying you could like literally build a replica of it with the tools in it. And, um, you know, used to, my dad also used to make my baseball bats, um, my wood bats. And he, um, again, he, you know, is he a carpenter? No, I figured out how to do it. He did. He spent, you know, and he made several different versions of the machine to do it. Yeah. And the original one, you probably remember this was up at Columbia. Um, (laughs) and it was done really, I mean, there was no real, correct me if I'm wrong. There, there wasn't, it was the first run of it, so it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of figuring out, and it was made also, I should say, to my exact specifications. You know, again, I took bats, so I like this handle, but the barrel's a little, th- you know, so we every inch of it, literally inch by inch by inch, was with uh, calipers, was measured to the thickness, and then, you know, cupped handle, does the, the, um, the knob face in or out? I mean, it was, it was, it was just unbelievable, and I, um, he ended up making them on a lathe in the in the basement um of uh you know of our our house and he got the wood you know he cold called louisville slugger and um you know he mentioned you know my dad talks he doesn't just call he tells you know they exchange life stories he just has a way with people where they you know they mutually open up to each other about all sorts of things and you know he said you know my my son's favorite player and this is after tina was off the yankees to be clear was um (laughs) derek jeter you know because i played shortstop and and all, all these lovely experiences meeting him in spring training. And he said, oh, well, you know, like I, I have his, um, you know, he selects from a certain type of um, a cut of wood. And, you know, the, the what the, um, what is the name for it? The pellets of wood. The Oh, uh, yeah, I'm not going to remember. Oh, it's the stock of some yeah, kind. Yeah, the stock. I, know, I mean, I the way, a, you know, right, a bat right. before it's about looks like this right. big tube of wood. And right. I forgot the name of the billet, I think it is. Billet, um, that is it. Yeah. The billet, yeah. So the billets, you know, that he doesn't choose, I can send to you. So I ended up somehow having bats of Derek Jeter's rejected <laughs> wood. And um, 
it was amazing. My dad would go down there and, um, you know, we'd, uh, we, you know, I'd focus, I'd use a bat and I'd say, you know, I wish that, you know, the, yeah. the handle was a little, go make another. And they were different, they'd have different names. And, um, one was the wombat and mm-hmm. there was, um, <laughs> It was, we had a lot of One fun. One was with numbered it. after the score you got on the SAT. Yeah, oh God. I got a lot of oh, shit for that from my friends. I had to keep saying, I did not sanction this. I didn't do it. I didn't. I, but yeah, that and, was. The, and these were burned into the bat, right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. There was no erasing. Yeah. yeah, they were etched in with a wood burning right. pencil. But um, it w- <laughs> only my father can get away, you know. Even, if it were any, for me or anyone else, it'd be just completely unacceptable. But, um, and they were the, I'll say this, they were the best bats I've, I've ever used. I mean, they were incredible. They were custom made, but also just, um, I still use them when I, I still practice with my dad, uh, mainly upstate and they just feel, you know, I mean, everyone who, you know, photographers have cameras, I mean, baseball players, your bat is your, like, mm-hmm. again, it's like an extension of you and it just it feels so right in my hands or something, but it's, it's kind of indefinable what the weight of it. It just, it feels like my dad made it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's the sort of house I grew up in. I mean, that's, that's, it was always a production facility. And now I play guitar. I started playing guitar, um, in college and the lathe is gone. I had mm-hmm. to convince him not to sell it or get rid of it. It's now upstate <laughs> sitting cause it's like a relic of my childhood. I can't. Well, don't worry. I'm taking very good care yeah, of the pitching machine. Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but there's a pitching machine I use for, I mean, I use pitching <laughs> machine with my dad for about, I don't know, eight years, six, eight years. Yeah. And um, I think he told me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he said, yeah, Michael, you could use it. I just, I need it back when your son gets to be yes. for it. Yeah. 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 Like, I need I, it back for Giancarlo. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because he will not part with <laughs> right, it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It is. I'm going to mount it. Uh, <laughs> It's actually quite a. It's quite beautiful. It's I mean, amazing. Zuka. Zuka. Oh my god! Yeah. Another plug. Um, right. Big yeah. fan of Zuka. Great machine. Um, another another funny. Well, not funny, but another connection going back to the baseball bats is. Uh, I think about it all the time, mostly because every time I pull my camera out of my camera bag, the Cyclops. Mm-hmm, that's right. On the Cyclops at the at the bottom, it says uh, that it's manufactured by SPQR. Uh, or sorry, by CCAM. Uh, not SPR, manufactured by CCAM, a division of SPQR baseball. <laughs> yeah. So it's, that's on my camera. Exactly. I yeah. see it every, it's, every it's, time. Like I was saying earlier, SPQR is um, in various legal or semi-legal or not legal at all forms has been kind of what we call our like operation that operates out of my, my uh, family's home. And again, that's the... Baseball bats. My dad now makes. Um, he's a, he's a he's becoming a luthier. He makes guitars for me now, which is amazing. And well, he started out repairing them. Yeah, he started right. repairing them, and like that's how he's sort of cutting his teeth with it. But and it's a it's a bigger undertaking than bats. It's harder to make a guitar than a bat. <laughs> I'll say that. But um, you know, he my dad manufactures his own uh, cameras, which was Kai, what Kai was talking about, and. Um, now they're doing this publishing venture where they're publishing other photographers' books and. It, SPQR is sort of, again, that's kind of, that's actually a legal LLC, but all the other stuff we, we kind of affectionately always called SPQR industries. And that's sort of the, like, <laughs> um, you know, our own name for the, the output of the house growing up and SPQR for those. I mean, I say that as if everyone knows, I, you guys know it, but I, I say that to most people, they have no idea what it is. And it's the Senate and the people of Rome, but in Latin, that's where the Q, I think, is quo. And uh, that was the sort of slogan of the Roman Empire, which uh, obviously last name Roma is is convenient. <laughs> well, I don't know if you know this, but um, 
back uh, when your mother and I started the database programming mm-hmm. together, the, the business together, yeah, yeah, yeah. we named it for you. We called it GC Applications. You know what? I actually <laughs> did not know that. <laughs> that's really sweet. That um, was a long time ago. Yeah, no, that's yeah. the sort of... Um, yeah I, yeah, I guess that's sort of always been the ethos. It's like it's always stayed in the family. Right. So, um, well, I think appropriately enough, maybe to wrap up, unless you want to have anything else, Michael. Is, I, I know we were we were talking a little bit earlier. You you have this new venture. Oh, you are. You're going to steal my. Co- that was what exactly oh, I, I was know going to. Oh, <laughs> steal! It's not stealing. <laughs> it's not stealing if you don't know you're doing it. <laughs> I had this great transition to the end, but all right. <laughs> no. All right. Yeah, go ahead. No. No, go ahead, well, Kai. <laughs> Here we are in the fortified bunker <laughs> and uh, in the alcove next to the fortified bunker <laughs> is uh, a new a new venture which has nothing to do with the SPQR umbrella, uh, but it also has a lot to do with uh, the internet and just like haywirepress.com, but this is an app that you've been working on called Cluster, C-L-U-S-T-R, leave off the E for... Tech reasons. For tech reasons, yeah. exactly. So uh, maybe you just want to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So um, I work with uh, I have two partners that, um, uh, you know, I, I would call friends as well at this point. But um, so we've been working on this app for a little over a year to give this the short version. It's sort of a, an anonymous display of your social network. It's a way to make plans and see what people are doing. Um, I actually mentioned this to Michael a bit uh, in the pre-production meeting. Oh, that sorry. We had. <laughs> Which I was late to. Yeah. <laughs> I was still in the disinfectant bath. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> while you were caught up, while there was a... They had to give you a double the body scan. Yes, yeah, the body scan. Can never be too careful here. And um, we are actually... Um, we're, we are releasing a version under a different name that has slightly different features. And I'll Ooh. just... I will debut it. The uh, national debut there here. The app is called... Postcard, and uh, we can go into a little bit. Um, that'll be in the app store in a couple months. So it's it's the same sort of idea. It's just pre- it's uh, presented a little differently. Essentially, you can ask your friends um, what they're up to, and they essentially send you a postcard of what they're doing, and you get to see where they are. They attach a picture um, and sort of a little description, in the form of, of an emoji of you know what they're doing at that moment. You know, it could be sleeping, could be you know about to go to sleep, it could be they're eating, they're going, whatever they're doing. You kind of ask your your friends. Hey, what are you up to in the form of this app postcard? And um, the name is sort of an homage to just my love of postcards. And uh, we actually all do. We brought in a whole stack in in, in the uh, office outside the vault here. We've been messing around with them all day and like organizing, like putting them in different collages. And it, it, the name essentially is, is meant to signify the sort of, you know, in, in modern culture, the sort of proto way of saying, hey, um, this is what I'm up to and where I am. You know, and sort of appropriating that for the uh, the world of mobile apps. So uh, that's the concept. Um, it's not a big uh, change from what Cluster is. It's just a little bit. Um, it's a little bit more of specifically what we're going after with what is your social and, network and up to. A bit, bit more visually graphic. <clears throat> yeah, it's more graphic exactly. And there's uh, there's that component to it that we're building in. So that'll be out, like I said, in a couple months. We're currently in development. And uh, we're really, really excited. We have designs for it, and we know exactly what it's going to look like. It's just a matter of building it out. And uh, now, is this eclipsing cluster? Or are they? Yeah, both? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. This is this is um, this is the uh, in in the tech world you would call it a pivot. Um, yeah. It's it's funny if you go. Like, we, That's how Twitter came about. I, exactly. Right. Twitter, Instagram. I mean, it's funny how there's there's a weird trajectory with successful apps where they're released, and then. It's somewhere within a year, and Cluster's been out, I think, about 
eight months now, but somewhere within a year, they say, oh, wait, this is what we were actually going for. And you changed, you know, Instagram used to be bourbon. And, right. um, you know, there's all these examples of Snapchat used to be Pictaboo. And there's all, there's all these examples of companies that, you know, we're really trying for something, and well, then they released. Twitter was originally like a this SMS oh, texting. Oh yeah, it was No, no. Even right? before that, the original company was doing something completely oh, different, yeah. and then they were like, "Well, we're almost out of money, and noth- mm. nothing's happening." Yeah, it was like a anyone f- else have an idea, and yeah. this guy's like, "Well, SMS message length messages, you know, blah blah blah." Mm-hmm. So that's how it. Like, right, exactly. Same it's, people, but new focus. Yeah, right? it's, and it's funny because you know when we first came out, we're like. You know, we're just, this is it. This is like everyone kind of thinks initially, like, this is, this is the thing, no changes, you know, we'll just build it out. And then, you know, you see that, um, it's a real exercise in, um, it's almost like, I, I, I really like this analogy of almost like a sketch artist. Like you, you have something in your head and you just need to like, how do I get other people to see that too? You know? And so it's, it's just, again, the same core concept, but we were always going for, it's just, we kind of realized this is. A, you know, it's a, it's a, an exercise in discovery, even internally of what exactly we're going for. What's the best way to make this idea usable? What's the best way to make this as effective as we can? And we think postcard and its functionality, which I described in brief, um, is something that even two people could use together and you, you, you know, it'll grow out from there, but you know, you and your best friend could have fun doing that. Just the two of you. It really sounds like a great idea. Yeah. I, that's I, an I amazing name that, yeah. that wasn't taken too. Yeah, it's not. Well, yeah. it's have you reserved <laughs> everything? <laughs> Kai, get off the phone. Get off the Hands phone. Hands up. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, so that's what, um, that's my new venture sort of, I guess, outside of the SPQR umbrella, but you know, mm-hmm. maybe an offshoot of it, maybe a, a, a small f- <laughs> fiefdom within the kingdom of that's SPQR. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking with oh, us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, I mean, like I, you mentioned earlier, I've known you guys for, you know, 10 and 25 years yeah. <laughs> respectively. So it's, um, it's great to talk with you guys on air. So. Yeah. Good <laughs> nice. to catch up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Signing off.